Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Heather Uncensored. Come on in, Ethel. Come on in, Sylvie. Have a seat. I've made you some uh, peppermint tea. You know, it's really good for your digestion. I'm excited to have Dr. Sarah Myhill today. She was trained as a medical doctor, and she'll tell you where she's come to and what she's thinking now. So let's get started. Well, I want to welcome Dr. Sarah Myhill. So excited to have her today. She's all the way from, is it Wales or England? I mean, uh, well, they're very close together, but uh, England, UK will do fine. Okay, UK. So from the UK. Um, Dr. Myhill qualified in 1981 as a medical doctor. Um, and since that time, she's worked full time in the National Health Service and um, has an independent medical practice. She has a special interest in chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, myalgic encephalitis. Is that right? Correct. It always sounds so, you know encephalitis it just sounds i don't know uh, that always sounds to me like so serious right does it i don't know and has written three original scientific papers on the role of mitochondria in this disease as well as being author of multiple prize-winning books the emphasis of these books is to allow patients to work out the causes of their symptoms and so their own unique path to recovery as she puts it i love to give people the rules of the game and the tools of the trade to restore fitness and vitality. So welcome, Dr. Myhill. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. That's very kind of you to invite me. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. Um, I know Georgina just, you know, talks really highly of you and uh, just so excited to have the same publisher. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do want to ask you, how did that happen that you were a medical doctor, 1981? What was the progression of that, that you now are also a naturopathic physician in okay um, um med medical education in this country and i'm sure it's the same in america increasingly is bankrolled by the pharmaceutical companies uh -huh. by big sure yeah now uh, and we all know the mantra of big pharma which is that a patient cured is a customer lost exactly so, so the drive of big pharma is to um have lots of patients with symptoms Put those patients on symptom suppressing medication so in the short term they feel a little bit better but in the long term those drugs do not address the underlying pathology the underlying reasons why people have symptoms and therefore we get an escalation of pathology and and that is much you know partly responsible for driving our current epidemics of dementia of heart disease and cancer now i worked in the uh, the british national health service for 20 years and increasingly became aware of this issue, that the doctors are not asking the questions why. They're not looking for causation. They're not looking for the mechanisms of disease. Right. And at that point, I became increasingly interested in naturopathic medicine. So um, uh, this year, I'm now, uh, I have been given an honorary diploma in naturopathic medicine, and I've been appointed the clinical director of the College of Naturopathic Medicine in this country. Wow, congratulations. That's awesome. That's very kind, because I love teaching. Uh, and um, what I do know is that there are not sufficient naturopathic physicians to go around uh, to satisfy the demands in this country. Uh -huh. and, uh, and, and, uh, and because, as I say, so 
What I'm trying to do is, as you pointed out in your um, uh, introduction, I want to give people the rules of the game Hmm. and the tools of the trade so they can heal themselves. Because the fact of the matter is the medical profession is not going to do that for you. The medical profession is not going to give you the roadmap, um, the path that you have to walk in order to restore good health and vitality. Yes, they will alleviate symptoms in the short term, but they won't get at root causes. And this is what naturopathic medicine is all about. And the interesting thing about it is that it is not disease specific, it's approach specific. So my starting point to treat absolutely everything is exactly the same. And I learned this through the patients I saw with chronic fatigue syndrome and myalgia encephalitis, because these were patients who were being extremely badly treated. Even conventional medicine had nothing to offer them. Uh, The symptom-suppressing drugs don't work. Um, uh, They make the patients uh, worse very quickly, and the patients are left high and dry with no proper management plan. And the techniques that I learned to treat those patients with chronic fatigue and ME are identical to those that we use to treat and prevent cancer, heart disease, and dementia. So one of the good news that I give my patients is if they put in place all these interventions, then not only will they get well, but they will live to a long and uh, and, and fulsome uh, life. Right. So what's so interesting, so we have to ask ourselves, what are the mechanisms of chronic fatigue syndrome and what are the mechanisms of mild encephalomyelitis? Now, chronic fatigue syndrome is the clinical picture that is characterized by we don't have enough energy to do the things we want to do. We don't have enough energy to do things physically, to do things mentally, or even to for our emotional health. All those things require energy. ME is chronic fatigue syndrome plus inflammation. And inflammation arises when the immune system is busy. And when the immune system is busy, that causes, as I say, symptoms of inflammation, which might be local or systemic. So when I say symptom of inflammation, I mean pain. So uh, irritable bowel syndrome, for example, is uh, an inflammatory condition as is uh, inflammatory bowel disease, intrinsic asthma, uh, chronic headaches and migraine, um, arteritis, uh, arthritis, fibromyalgia. These are all conditions associated with inflammation. And these symptoms are very common in patients with ME. So there is two. And of course, what's so interesting about that is these are the two great mechanisms by which all chronic disease is produced. Poor energy delivery mechanisms, and of course, if you've got poor energy delivery mechanisms, then the immune system, which is also responsible for healing and repair, doesn't have the energy to heal and repair, and so we get degeneration. Exactly. And then, of course, inflammation, and inflammation is driven when the immune system is busy, and the cause of that will be chronic infection, because uh, often because an acute infection hasn't been effectively dealt with, and for an example of that, about 2.6 of the population have long COVID because they don't have an immune system that dealt efficiently with acute COVID. Um, so, um, um, uh, well, can we talk about long COVID? Of course, of okay. course. And long COVID is going to be the next big, it already is the next big epidemic. Right. And long COVID is characterized by poor energy delivery mechanisms and inflammation. So the clinical picture of long COVID is exactly the same as myalgic encephalomyelitis. So there's a two-pronged approach. I say, first of all, address energy delivery mechanisms and then look at the inflammation. Now, let's look at energy delivery mechanisms because they are implicated 
in pretty much any Western disease that you care to mention. And the analogy that I like to use to explain energy delivery mechanisms in the body is the car analogy. Because I get it, and guess what? My patients get it too. So for your car to work, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank. And that is all about diet and gut function. Mm-hmm. Then we need the mitochondrial engine, and the mitochondrial engine takes fuel from the bloodstream, it burns it in the presence of oxygen to generate energy for that cell. And uh, with energy, that cell can undertake all the tasks that it needs to take. So if you don't have good energy delivery, then the cell will fail and therefore the organ will fail. Right. And we now know that much of heart failure is due to poor mitochondrial function in the heart. Much of brain failure, i.e. dementia, is due to poor mitochondrial function, poor energy delivery mechanisms to the brain. And cancer, of course, is another failure of the immune system. Um, It doesn't have the energy for efficient immune surveillance. So uh, mitochondria are vitally important. I mean, mitochondria, I I don't know if you've heard of them, but uh, these are the engine of the car. I learned about mitochondria uh, at medical school in the 1970s. And it was the sort of exam we had to do for biochemistry in order to be able to qualify as a doctor. It's the sort of stuff you mugged up the night before on black coffee and chocolate biscuits, <laughs> regurgitated <laughs> the exam paper the next day and hoped you'd done enough to pass. Right. And the reason then why we didn't think it was very important was because in the 1970s, there, were no, there was no clinical application for healthy mitochondria. Right. People, you know, the, the doctors really didn't understand what they're about and their importance. Yeah. We now know that mitochondria implicated in almost any disease you care to mention, from diabetes to dementia to cancer to heart failure to, and so on. So they are very important cell organelles. Yes. Uh, so, so, so for our car to go, as I say, we've got to have the fuel in the tank, we've got the mitochondrial engine, and then we have to have the control mechanism. And that's the thyroid accelerator pedal, which determines how fast your mitochondria go, how fast your engines go. And the adrenal gearbox and the adrenal glands allow us to gear up in response to stress. And that very close control of mitochondrial function is so important. Because from an evolutionary perspective, we cannot afford to waste one drop of energy. If you waste energy, you aren't going to survive as well as somebody who is an efficient energy user. So that control um, uh, is very tightly um, maintained say, to optimize the output from our body. So let's say we have got good energy delivery mechanisms. We've got a large bucket of energy. If for whatever reason you don't have good energy delivery mechanisms, then the bucket of energy gets smaller. Now, obviously, we spend energy just to stay alive. About two-thirds of all the energy we spend just goes into basal metabolic rate, i.e. just staying alive. And then having spent that energy, then there's a little bit left over that we can spend on enjoying ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, or whatever. Now, the energy supply system in the body is not like a bank. We can't go overdrawn. We have so much energy we can spend. And if you spend more energy than you have available, then you will die. You will die because you don't have the energy for the heart to work, the brain to work, the gut to work, and so on. So to stop us, to prevent us spending too much energy, to prevent us getting the body gives us symptoms. And those symptoms are very nasty, very unpleasant symptoms. They stop athletes winning gold medals. You know, they are very uh, nasty symptoms indeed. But we have to thank, you know, uh, thank our bodies that we do get those symptoms because if we fail to get those symptoms, we'd spend and spend and spend and spend and we would die. Exactly. 
Now, at the end of every day, I mean, an obvious symptom is fatigue. And at the end of every day, yes, you know, I will be tired at the end of the day, but I will have a good night's sleep and I will wake up the next morning refreshed. The difference between normal fatigue and pathological fatigue is how you feel the next day. And it is a feature of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME and long COVID that they get this very severe post-exertional malaise, this very severe delayed fatigue. If they overdo things one day, then they pay for it the next. And very early on, to prevent those nasty symptoms, they learn they have to pace their activities. They have to cut down on what they do. And yes, early on, this is an essential part of of management just to stay alive and and not be, say you're feeling dreadful all the time. But they say the first thing you have to do is address energy delivery mechanisms, diet, mitochondria, thyroid, and adrenal gland. And can I interrupt for a sec? So what do you actually... uh, you know, pacing. Do you use other modalities in naturopathic medicine for long COVID, say hydrotherapy or botanical medicine or homeopathy? Yes, but we have to we have to put those in context. We have to ask them, you know, what are those tools doing, and uh, and, and and what can we expect to achieve with those tools, and are they relevant to use in this particular patient? Because right. of course, the problem with these patients is they don't have energy. So they can't just do anything. They can't do hyperbaric oxygen, water therapy, and this and that. You have to focus their efforts. Secondly, they aren't able to work, so they don't have any money. Mm -hmm. So we have to get them well as efficiently and as inexpensively as we possibly can. Now, it's very tempting to give people shopping lists of things and say, yeah, go out and do it all and and you'll be fine. But that simply isn't possible. We have to prioritize. And the single most important thing that people must do in order to get well, and is also the most difficult thing, has to do with diet and gut function. We've got to get the right fuel in the tank. Yeah. We have uh, an extraordinary body because we have a dual fuel body. We have bodies that can run on sugars and carbohydrates and that can run on fat and fiber, i.e. ketone body. Now, we evolved that dual fuel system in order that humans could survive the winter. So as humans migrated away from Africa, we had to cope with the season. Now, what happens when you, when you live in, a, uh, in, in, in Northern Europe, for example, um, um, we have to survive a long, cold winter. But what helps us to do that is the autumn windfall. And in the autumn, we have a windfall of free food, fruit, nuts, seeds, berries, um, root vegetables, pulses, you know, um, potatoes, all these foods. And these are all carbohydrate foods. Now, in order to, to um, gain from that free harvest, effectively, we have a carbohydrate addiction gene that gets switched on. And we eat carbohydrates in an addictive way. We can't stop eating them. And as a result of that, we get fat. And, of course, getting fat in the autumn is perfect survival value for the winter. If you live so, in okay. And Canada. And, and Canada. Not so much Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, in, in North, North, Northern times, we evolved this dual fuel system. And all humans have this dual fuel system. But that business of, of feasting on, on carbohydrates and getting fat and getting overweight is called metabolic syndrome. And we know that is a major risk factor for dementia, heart disease, and cancer. Now, primitive women avoided that and primitive men avoided that because they were just in metabolic syndrome for a short window of time, and that was survival value for the winter. Mm. 
Now, of course, with modern humans, we're addicts. We have a fantastic agricultural system. We have fantastic supermarkets. We can eat carbohydrates all year round. We never turn off the addiction gene. We go on consuming junk foods, sugars and fruits and pastas and pies, you know, throughout the year, and we remain in permanent metabolic syndrome, and that is associated with fatigue. So the starting point to get well is to get onto a paleo-ketogenic diet. Paleo, because it cuts out the dairy products, which are not evolutionary correct foods, and the gluten grains, which are very allergenic. As I mentioned, part of um, um, uh, the problem is the inflammatory cause, and the immune system can be inflamed for reasons of allergy. And dairy products and gluten grains are common and major allergens. So the paleo ketogenic diet cuts out those major allergens and is ketogenic. That is to say we fuel our body with fat and with fiber. Mm-hmm. Now, I've written several books on it. The latest is called uh, Paleo Ketogenic, The Why and the How. Oh. And I go into some detail about um, uh, which foods you can eat, how to calculate your calorie requirements, your protein requirements, how much fiber you have to have, de da de da de da That's but, great. And it's called Paleo Keto? Yeah, it's called Paleo Ketogenic, The Why and the How. And you probably have Chelsea Green Publishers um, who published uh, Georgina's books in America. And uh, and that book, you can certainly get through Chelsea Green uh, in the USA. Terrific. And and the point here is that the preferred fuel of mitochondria are ketones. And we now know you can reverse diabetes with a ketogenic diet. You can reverse heart failure with a ketogenic diet. You can reverse dementia with a ketogenic diet. And you can certainly prevent and probably slow cancer with a ketogenic diet. Right. So ketones are the preferred fuel, and we say either get them from fat or from the fermentation of fiber in the large bowel. And it's estimated we can get up to about 500 kilocalories a day uh, through eating sufficient fiber. So, um, and, and fiber has many other benefits for the, for the large bowel. So um, that's the first point. And the second point is that people who, who consume sugars and carbohydrates in their diet, they end up with an upper fermenting gut. And that is very bad news indeed. Now, yeah. the upper gut, the stomach, the duodenum, the small intestine should be near sterile. The stomach should be acidic for the business of uh, digesting protein and uh, absorbing minerals. And then the duodenum has to be uh, alkali with bile salts and pancreatic enzymes for the business of absorbing, uh, digesting and absorbing fat. Now, what happens if we overwhelm the ability of the upper gut to deal with, um, with foods because we overwhelm it with sugars and carbohydrates? And the answer is the bacteria move in and the fungi move in and they ferment those foods. Right. And that is very bad news indeed because, first of all, those foods are fermented and produce all sorts of nasty toxins. This is called the auto-brewery syndrome. Right. Yeast will ferment sugar to produce alcohol and serious amounts of alcohol. You know, you can get drunk on the auto-brewery syndrome, not just ethyl alcohol, but propyl alcohol and butyl alcohol. I've never heard it called auto-brewery before. (laughs) That was a paper that was published in the (laughs) Journal of Nutritional Medicine in the 1990s Uh, where uh, the auto-brewery syndrome was described. Um, And you can get, in severe cases, you can get levels of alcohol that uh, get close to those that would have you done for drunk driving exactly right it is it's, it, it's a serious amount but not just alcohols d-lactate hydrogen sulfide 
putrefaction fraction of proteins, aminoacyl compounds, and all these poison, the, poison the, the body. They poison the liver and they poison the brain. And then on top of that, the microbes themselves produce bacterial endotoxin, which is nasty, toxic stuff, fungal mycotoxins, which is nasty, toxic stuff. But perhaps worse than that, you know, at medical school, we are taught, yes, there are microbes in the gut, there they remain, and we now know that's not true. Those bacteria and fungi, they do get into the bloodstream. It's called bacterial translocation or fungal translocation. Right. And those microbes are unfriendly microbes which get stuck at distance, distal sites. They get stuck in our joints to drive arthritis. They get stuck in our muscles to drive um, um, uh, fibromyalgia uh, and polymyalgia rheumatically. They st get stuck in our blood vessels to drive temporal arthritis, in our lungs, intrinsic asthma, in our skin, um, um, uh, chronic urticaria, in our brain, various psychoses. So those microbes in the fermenting gut, we now know drives a huge amount of pathology, particularly joint pain, inflammatory arthritis, and indeed osteoarthritis. So by doing a paleoketogenic diet and starving out those microbes so they can no longer flourish, and then killing them with vitamin C and killing with iodine at night, you can then restore normal upper gut function. And that is absolutely, you will not recover from any disease until you have a normal functioning upper gut because you need to fuel the body with the correct fuel right. and you need the raw materials in order for healing and repair to take place. So again, one of the problems, so often I see people, they come and see me and they spent a fortune on nutritional supplements, on CoQ10 and magnesium and acetylcarnitine, all these things, but they haven't sorted out their fermenting gut. Right. From an evolutionary perspective, mitochondria are derived from bacteria. And what mitochondria need to function, like magnesium, CoQ10, vitamin uh, B3, so do bacteria in the gut. And so by taking those expensive supplements on a fermenting gut, you're just feeding the microbes mm -hmm. and making the, forgut, the fermenting gut much worse. Right. So this is why it all starts with diet. And, you know, I became aware of this, you know, um, uh, you know uh, some years ago when I would give people, you know, a shopping list of things to do. And, of course, what do people do? Well, they cherry-pick the easy things. Oh, it's easy to take some thyroid hormones, to take a few supplements, to do some detox regimes, but it's hard work to do the diet. And so they, they put that to one side and they don't do it. Right. But now I know that it all starts with that. And if people listening to us talking, if they do nothing other than start looking at a paleo-ketogenic diet and start putting in some of the uh, uh, foods and, 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 and menus to, to make that happen, you will be doing yourself an enormous favour because you will be improving the quality of your life and you will be improving the quantity of your life. Uh, one of the presentations I'm going to do for the um, College of Naturopathic Medicine in September is how to live to 100. And it's all this stuff. You know, and, and as I say in all my books, just do it. You know, right. Just do the diet. Sort out the fermenting gut. Take the supplements for mitochondria. And you can improve your health massively. It is amazing, isn't it? And it's, it's, just, it's amazing when you watch it. That how can this be so simple? And allopathic medicine doesn't understand that. And I think that's because they are bribed by the pharmaceutical companies so that we will follow, be sick. But follow the money. Yeah, exactly. And the other the other part of that is exactly what you just said is the fact that 
people need to be motivated to do the work. And that is difficult for people, especially when people are really tired or people are depressed or people are triggered by, you know, uh, whatever they're triggered by. It's difficult to maintain that. So that's why I think, you know, just having a very simple diet and just saying, okay, you know, you have to kind of force yourself to at least have that in the kitchen that you see simply, simply what you can do. Correct. Correct. One of my favorite authors was uh, Sherry Rogers. Uh, who oh, wrote sure. that The cure is in the kitchen. And she's yes. absolutely right. The cure yeah. is in the kitchen. And it all starts that very basic stuff. And, you know, I hear what you're saying, but those symptoms are nasty fatigue. Depression is a symptom that the brain gives us when it knows it doesn't have enough energy to deal with demands. Right. If I could give a depressed person infinite energy, then they just go out and sort things out. And then they'd, and they'd uh, right. spend energy on having fun. And, you know, and life is all about having fun, isn't it? Right, right. Um, but, uh, yes, this, so those symptoms, yes, they're very nasty, but they are very empowering because no one is going to be better motivated to get you well than you. And what I'm saying is it is within everybody's power to improve energy delivery mechanisms. And, you know, you don't need an expensive gene cell therapy or loads of investigation tests. Yeah. The simple stuff done really well gets you an awful long way there. And what I try to do is make that information as freely available as I can so, so people, once they've grasped the nettle, yeah. can really see a difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wonder if there's a difference from the UK to America, because what I found, especially moving from Canada down to Los Angeles, is I never realized how people were so addicted to their pills. And in fact, that they equated good health with kind of good pills. And that is really a different, I think that's different, isn't it, in the UK? Yeah, well, uh, they're they're not very good here either, I can tell you. And uh, it's because it's because people don't want to take responsibility for their own health. They'd much rather give it to somebody very yes. clever, you know, uh, very rich, uh, highly educated, yeah. who can then dish out the pills. And pills are easy to take. Yeah. And they've been trained to do that. They've been trained to give away their power to these authority figures. Yes. And that's the whole thing that happened with um, in COVID. Nobody stood okay. up. I mean, I mean, yes, some of us did, of course, to say this is the wrong way to go. But... For the majority of people on the planet, they just didn't, they just couldn't say that, no, and, this and is it, not the way to go with all these and it was worse. It was worse than that because the doctors themselves were saying to people, do nothing, stay at home, and then when you get really sick, we'll bring you into hospital. Exactly. And what, and what we now know from this COVID epidemic, which is just so interesting, is, is the most dangerous thing you can do to a patient is send them into hospital. Again, we have had some fantastic studies that have been done that show that simple naturopathic medicine is highly effective at supporting the immune system and um, and preventing uh, uh, serious complications. And more importantly, by acquiring COVID naturally um, and dealing with it with naturopathic medicine, um, you induce natural immunity, which gives you immunity against the virus for life. Yes. Now, I'm just going to very quickly just go through the simple things we can do to protect ourselves from COVID that everybody needs to know. The first thing is eat a low-sugar carbohydrate diet. Sugars feed all infections. Very often diabetes, and of course in diabetes people run a natural high blood sugar, but they run a high blood sugar unnaturally. 
uh, diabetes is often picked up because that person starts to get infections, chest infections, skin infections, urinary tract infections, and of course, COVID. And we, we know that the mortality from COVID is much higher in people who are overweight or people who are diabetic. So the first thing to do is cut out the junk food, do a paleoketogenic diet. Secondly, vitamin D. Many studies have been done now looking at the levels of vitamin D in, in patients with, with, with COVID. And if your level of vitamin D is 125 um, nanomoles per liter or above, your risk of death from COVID is effectively zero. If your vitamin D is 25 or below, then your risk of death from COVID is over 90%. Mm. So vitamin D is absolutely critical. Now, vitamin D is the sunshine vitamin. We don't get enough sunshine in this country. Mm. And my view is that we should all be taking 10,000 international units of vitamin D daily for life. Highly protected against COVID, also protected against cancer, heart disease, and dementia. It's a very important anti-inflammatory. So vitamin D is critical. I love that ten thousand. Normally we say two to five, so this is uh, double that, triple that. But, well, yeah, but the point about ten thousand is well, that represents about an hour of sunshine. Mm. You know, how much sunshine did primitive woman get? Well, she got twelve hours of sunshine. You know, a lot more than that. Right. And the second point is nobody has ever had any side effects any complication, any problem whatsoever from 10,000 international units of vitamin D. It is completely safe dose and highly effective. That's the single most important thing you could probably do. Yes. And the second thing to do is to take vitamin C. Now, again, it's humans, fruit bats and guinea pigs that can't make their own vitamin C. So my little dog, Nancy, my best friend who's sitting next to me, <laughs> she can make her own vitamin C. She can make up to 15,000 milligrams a day in response to an infectious stress. Right. Humans can't do that. So we should be taking at least 5,000 milligrams of vitamin C. That's a teaspoon of ascorbic acid you know, in water, sip you know, through the day. Keep your vitamin C levels high because vitamin C is an is is excellent defense against all infections. So we're not just talking about COVID-19. We're talking about Epstein-Barr virus, you know, glandular fever or mono. We're talking about um, 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 uh, shingles, uh, chickenpox, all the other influenzas, all infections you're going to protect yourself from using vitamin C. And the third incredibly useful tool is iodine. Yes. Now, iodine contact kills all microbes. Mm. And a very useful ploy is to use a salt pipe, which is just a little plastic tube with some salt in it, put a couple of drops of Lugol's iodine, 15% in there, and just sniff it. Now, you will smell the iodine. You know, it smells like being by the seaside. And, uh, and by sniffing it, then you will line your nose, respirat uh, sinuses, respiratory tract, right down into the lungs. And therefore, at the first hint of any symptom, any cough, any cold, any sniffle, any sneeze, sniff iodine like that. Right. And you will massively reduce the loading dose of virus because it's the loading dose of virus that can determine the severity of any illness. So we're all going to get COVID-19 eventually. It's inevitable. But what we want is a small loading dose and an immune system that's in tip-top shape with all the ammunition it needs, all the vitamin D and the vitamin C it needs to deal with that. Get rid of the infection quickly and simply and establish natural immunity for life. That is the perfect um, sequence. And that will also prevent you from getting long COVID, which, as I say, is a debilitating illness, 2.6% of the population. 
Um, what was that percent? 2.6? It's uh, long COVID is currently estimated to afflict 2.6% of the Western population. Mm. It's common. And long COVID stops you working, it stops you uh, earning an income, you haven't got any energy to spend physically, it leads to a miserable life, relationships break down, it's a devastating illness. Yeah. And preventing it is just so important. Yes, absolutely. That's for sure. So um, what about in terms of when you see these people who are really, like, say, depressed because of the they're so tired, what are the kind of things, are there any other kind of things that you would not just give them but be able to do perhaps um, psychologically? Well, that, well, or well, well, the first thing we have to do is we give them a vision. You know, we give them ah, a roadmap great. to get well, and that is so important. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I do, which is very popular, is I run all-day workshops. Anybody in, anybody in the world can sign up to them, and I talk from half past nine in the morning to four o'clock in the afternoon on all these subjects. And very and, clearly, I might add. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I love teaching, and yeah. we always have fun on these workshops. But the joy of them is, is not just that I give people the information and the nitty-gritty of what they actually have to do, but there are people who, who are there are at various stages of their recovery. And so often mum will chirp up and say, yeah, 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 you've got to start with the paleo keto. It transformed my life. And maybe they've got stuck at another point. And some people probably say, yeah, Epsom salt bath, brilliant for fibromyalgia. Suddenly you become a group. Suddenly you're listening to people who are suffering from exactly the same problems as you are, but have found simple, practical uh, interventions that are effective. And that is hugely empowering because suddenly you're not on your own. Right. You're suddenly with a group of people who are, you know, similarly troubled, who had, who faced similar opprobrium from the medical profession, and told that you know there's nothing wrong with them, and they're idle, and they're hypochondriacal, and they've raided exercise. You know, we've all heard it before. You know, these people are being put down, and yeah. uh, and suddenly you can you give them, you know, a, a vision, you know, a horizon, a future yeah. where they can see clearly the way forward. Yes. And um, I say, we do have fun, and um, and I get lots of happy feedback from people who attended the workshops. And if any listeners wanted to find that out, they would go to your website, or is there a... Yeah, if, if you if you just Google Dr. Myhill, my website comes up. I looked the other day, it's had 21 million hits. So wow. There are lots of people who've gone there. And as we're speaking, um, Craig, who I work very closely with, um, we are updating it and putting on all the new information and taking off the stuff that's out of date. So there are there are many pages there, and if you can't find something that you're looking for, then you know ask me. Um, Craig runs a fantastic Facebook group and also Instagram, so we can point you in the right direction or point you in the right direction to which book to read or which webinar to join up or a workshop to do or whatever. So there are lots of different ways that you can get help from your own home. And is that and in, Craig your assistant? Sorry, uh, Craig Robinson. Well, no, he writes the books with me. Oh, okay. uh, he, he's a first-class mathematician from Oxford University. He himself suffers from uh, ME, but he has got a beautifully logical mind. Uh-huh. So I can write the books, and then he um, picks apart the logic and says, no, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense. So he oh. reads the books from, from a layman's perspective, but a layman with a fabulously logical mind. So he doesn't let me get away with anything. If I haven't explained uh-huh. something, then he, he pulls me right back. I'm glad I asked. That's so interesting. And so I just want to say Dr. Myhill is D-R-M-Y-H-I-L-L.com, correct? That'll get you there. Uh, .co.uk. Okay, well, I, I do have um, 
One question I wanted to ask you is, do you see people who have calcified uh, pineal glands? Oh, gosh. Well, that's quite unusual. Um, calcification in the brain is usually a symptom of inflammation and damage to arteries. Mm -hmm. And that damage to arteries occurs because of sugar damage. Sugar is sticky stuff and it adheres to um, arteries and, um, and bl high blood pressure. And high blood pressure is also part of sugar addiction. So as those arteries are damaged, the um, cholesterol then moves in for the business of healing and repair. And one long-term symptom of inflammation is calcification. So if you have a brain scan which shows little flecks of calcification, it tells us that there's damage to the blood vessels. And um, if, if the pineal gland was calcified, then that suggests that there's been damage to the pineal gland. Now, I rarely do um, those sort of scans. They are not necessary to diagnose problems and they are not necessary to manage problems and they are very expensive. So I do you think that, excuse me, do you think that they manifest sim symptoms? Do you think that you don't need to worry about that? You can just do the, because I know people who, who absolutely do not eat any sugar and eat a very anti-inflammatory diet, but still have this situation. Well, we have to ask the question, why are their blood vessels being damaged? Mm -hmm. So the number one cause would be sugar, junk food, and carbohydrates. Number two is probably homocysteine. And again, this is something that uh, doctors are not taught to screen for, although they should be. Uh -huh. Having a high homocysteine tells us that you are a poor methylator. And if you're a poor methylator, right. then you do not detox and you cannot heal and repair. Right. Because methylation is the biochemical process by which we read DNA. And if you can't read DNA and transcribe it, you cannot do, make protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you cannot heal and repair. And we see degenerative conditions as a result. So having a high homocysteine is damaging for blood vessels or is a marker of, and of course, dementia, cancer, and heart disease. It also runs very strongly in families. Exactly. So we would start off by doing a paleoketogenic diet. And we can look at how that manifests on arteries by looking at the percentage of friendly cholesterol in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And that's the HDL cholesterol. That's the friendly cholesterol. And the point here is that that cholesterol is used up in the business of healing and repairing arteries. So if your friendly cholesterol is low, we can infer from that that you are currently damaging your arteries. People doing a good paleoketogenic diet, I expect the HDL to be at least 40% of the total HDL. I of uh, the total cholesterol. I expect it to be above, well, in this country, the figure is two, um, I think it's nanomoles per litre. So, um, um, uh, a picomoles per litre. So, we need um, uh, good levels of HDL, and that is a useful marker. So, if, despite doing a good paleoketogenic diet and the vitamin C and the iodine and the basic workup, you still have a poor percentage of HDL, then we must measure homocysteine. If the homocysteine is normal, then it's likely the arteries are being damaged by inflammation. And we then have to look at the inflammatory uh, processes that are going on, which can be driven by allergy, by autoimmunity, or by chronic infection. And the, uh, the four common chronic infections that drive ME, well, that list is now going to be five. Uh, the, four, the, the four common ones are Epstein-Barr virus, chronic mycoplasma infections, chronic Lyme disease, um, uh, fun chronic fungal infection, and now, of course, long COVID. Mm -hmm. Those five infections are the top five drivers of patients who've got ME. 
by taking a good history, you can usually get a pretty good idea of where to look first. Okay, so that was Epstein-Barr, chronic yes. mycoplasma infection, yes. Um, uh, Lyme disease. Lyme. And Lyme disease is increasing in the USA at the moment at the rate of 1,000 new cases every day. Oh, I didn't know that. That's incredible. Uh, and then chronic fungal infection, and then, of course, now long COVID. Right. And so let's, can we talk about uh, chronic mycoplasma for a second? Yes. So I'm not sure that I'm correct with this, but it would seem from the books that I've been reading lately is that when they talked about HIV and AIDS, that in fact it was a problem more with chronic mycoplasma. Uh, 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 or possibly HHV6. Oh, can you say that? I, uh, HV? HH, human herpes virus number six. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, there's, that is a killer virus. It's a very nasty one. And it may well be that um, that, that is as important as um, uh, HIV. Okay. It's part of and the, Yeah, and that's, in fact, why AZT did not work. And that was the real... But I don't pretend to be any expert in HIV. You know, my area of expertise is, is, is you know, chronic infections that drive ME. And um, all, all the herpes viruses are nasty viruses. The worst one of all, the worst of all is Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and they are, they are susceptible to antivirals. And this is um, work that's been done by Dr. Martin Lerner, who's an American physician. And he himself had a, had ME and he had a cardiomyopathy that was due to chronic Epstein-Barr virus infection. And he cured himself with valacyclovir, which uh-huh. is an antiviral drug. It's right. wonderfully effective and very safe. All right. So if I had a patient who, um, for example, said to me, well, you know, uh, I was fit and well, and when I was at university, I got Epstein-Barr virus or mono with my glands came up, and I have never been well since then, and I get recurrent sore throats and malaise, then um, that's a very likely possibility that they have got chronic Epstein-Barr virus infection. And we diagnose that um, with blood tests, first of all, by looking at antibody teters, So we look at IgM and IgG antibody teeters. And the rough rule of thumb is that if that patient's antibody teeter is five times higher than baseline, then that suggests they are actively fighting that virus with um, antibodies. And secondly, we look at the cell-mediated effects by doing an Ellispot test that arm in laboratories in Germany. And that looks to see how busy the T lymphocytes are at fighting that particular virus. Mm. And if we get an early spot result of, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, then that tells us that there is a cellular fight going on as well against the Epstein-Barr virus. And those, that the clinical picture plus those tests would be very powerful indicator for trying that patient on antiviral drugs. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Interesting. So interesting. Um, so many things to ask. Where do I begin? <laughs> So you feel you have so many people, so many people that you do this over like a group. Do you find that more effective than one in one? Well, one in one is ideal, of course. But I simply, as I say, there simply aren't the physicians to go around. Yes. And the basic workup to treating these conditions is exactly the same. Right. And I call these regimes, I call them Groundhog regimes, because like the film, you know, Groundhog Day, which is a comedy, where there's a time loop and our hero comes right. back to the then tries to relive it. I call these groundhog regimes because I come back to them over 
and over and over again. Yeah. And we have three levels of groundhog. And the details of my groundhog regimes are all free on my website. But we have groundhog basic, which is what we should all be doing all the time to live our life to its full potential. But guess what? I've never had a 17-year-old come to me and say, you know, I'd like to live to 100. It hasn't happened. I mean, it's never going to happen. <laughs> right. But, yeah, that's the theoretical baseline. Uh-huh. And then we have what I call Groundhog <laughs> Acute. And Groundhog Acute is what we should all do in the event of an acute infection. Mm-hmm. So, strictly cut out sugars and carbohydrates. Do not symptom suppress with drug medication. Do not take paracetamol or aspirin. Take a high dose of vitamin C, high dose of vitamin D. Sniff iodine, you know, and maybe fast, all these things to help the immune system reduce the infectious loading dose and fight that infection efficiently. And then we have what I call groundhog chronic. And people come to me with chronic disease, all the things that we have listed. And groundhog chronic is how we treat that, the paleoketogenic diet, vitamin C to bowel tolerance, sort out the mitochondria, look at the thyroid dysfunction, look at the adrenal dysfunction, and then switch to inflammation. Is that inflammation being driven by toxic stress? Should we be doing detox regimes? Is it being driven by chronic infection? Is it being driven by chronic allergy or autoimmunity? And by taking a very careful history, you can get a good idea of of how the disease started and, and what makes things worse and what makes things better. But when I take a history from somebody, I always start off with, When was the last time you were fit and well and healthy and nothing the matter? That is always the starting point. Mm. And just like a detective going through, you know, um, uh, the sequence of events, you try to recognize clinical pictures, work out the triggers, what makes it better, what makes it worse. And then that gives you a pretty good idea of where to focus your attention on. But the basic regimes are the same. The diet, the fermenting gut, the supplements, the mitochondrial support, all that stuff is standard. And that's why I feel able to run workshops very effectively where I can treat 20 people at the same time or advise 20 people at the same time and know that I have moved them all on. Yes. All, all of them know, end up, at the end of the day, they all know what they've got to do and how they've got to do it. Yeah. yeah. It's a very efficient way. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, I'm totally there with you. I have a question for you from myself. So, you know, I've been doing all this book on trauma, and I'm just finishing the citations, hopefully by tomorrow, because it seems like my brain really was craving cream, craving fat. Now, I haven't had dairy in more than 30 years. All of a sudden, I was at Whole Foods or wherever it was, and I bought I hate to say Whole Foods because they've really gone. But um, I bought this organic milk and I got organic raw milk and I got organic cream. I even got organic whipping cream. And I just, my body wanted it. There was, I didn't have any of the allergies I normally would have 30 years ago. And I'm just wondering if that's, you know, my brain cells needed that fat. Well, absolutely. I mean, what's so fascinating about taking history from somebody is they use the very vo- correct vocabulary that gives you an idea of what they, what they actually need and what they're, what, they're, what they're requiring. So people who often say, my brain feels poisoned. They're right, it is poisoned. They're poisoned because they've got a fermenting gut, for example. Yeah. Now, the brain is fat-loving. It's largely made up of fat. It is fueled by fat. It is powered by um, a myelin sheath that wrap themselves around nerve cells. You know, the, the brain is fat-loving. Yes, Unfortunately, you chose a fat that's, partic- I mean, that's particularly pernicious because dairy products are a problem. 
But the safest part of dairy products is butter. It's the fat. So I'm del- so um, if if my patients are quite certain they're not allergic to dairy products, then fat then a butter is is an acceptable food for them to have. Butter or ghee is perfect. But the problem is the, with the rest of dairy products because milk protein, for example, is growth promoting which is ideal. That's exactly what you want if you're a young mammal and growing very quickly. But if, you want to, if you're a mature mammal like you and me and you want to avoid cancer, then you don't want to be consuming growth promoting. Yes. Milk protein also makes for sticky blood. And, you know, we don't want sticky blood, do we? And then we have the problem of uh, milk sugars, which are fermented in the gut. So that's uh, another problem. And then there's the problem of the calcium-magnesium ratio. There's far too much calcium for magnesium for magnesium, for the adult mammal. Mm-hmm. Our actual requirements are one part calcium to one part magnesium, but dairy products contain 10 parts calcium to one part magnesium. And since they are absorbed by the same mechanism, then dairy products will induce a magnesium deficiency. Mm-hmm. And magnesium deficiency is a very, very common problem. Mm-hmm. It's a major risk factor for heart disease, for osteoporosis, and for poor energy delivery mechanisms. My m- magnesium is so essential for mitochondria. So dairy products get the thumbs down, except butter, butter. as long as you're not allergic to it. And I couldn't agree more for all these years, but because I had this craving, I just took it off the shelf, and I didn't have all that kind of the allergies that I had years ago. I felt like my body was trying to siphon off what was good about it because it didn't make me feel sick. And, you know, it's gone on for a couple months. I'm about to get off of it completely because it also does coat your throat and singing. It doesn't help singing. Um, But I just thought it was so curious that that happened. It was like, you know, it's like being pregnant. I used to crave canned corn for some strange, you know, I didn't even eat that kind of stuff. So I was trying to figure out, well, what if I just ate a ton of avocados or ate, you know, and I already had butter. That, that's something that I never cut out. But it's just, it's a funny thing how your body just tells you, you really need this and it will go for it. So we it need does, to our bodies. You're, you're absolutely right. But of course, primitive woman would not have had access to dairy products. So she wouldn't have craved them. Now, Trish, uh, um, Lorraine Cordain, who is um, uh, the one of the world experts on paleoketogenic diets, now, when asked by um, uh, somebody, well, aren't dairy products, you know, natural foods? He said, have you ever tried milking a wild bison? <laughs> primitive, primitive woman, you know, would not have done that. But yeah. she might have coconut milks. She might have uh-huh. had access to avocados. She might have had access yeah. to lard from, from a kill. Now, That's those right. are the fats that she would have craved. Yes. And those are the fats that have been very good for her brain and for her immune system. And I think that I was just walking by these shelves where there was no none of those kind of things and the brain gets what it needs to get and there's your beautiful little dog nancy look how cute she is my best friend (laughs) Uh, so sweet um well what other questions do i have for you well i did want to say one thing about how do you feel about what happened with the vaccine and then what that does to the body the vaccine is a disaster it is a i mean it does no but well, it does very little good whatsoever, and it does it has huge potential for harm because what that vaccine does is injects you with messenger RNA that turns the body into a factory of spike protein. So we are now generating huge amounts of spike protein, and spike protein is a cytotoxic protein. 
It's pro-inflammatory, so it switches on the immune system, and it's pro-coagulation, so it switches on uh, clotting. And that is why we're seeing epidemics of myocarditis in young people and inflammatory conditions in others. It does very little to um, improve one's immunity, and any immunity it may afford is short-lived. Mm-hmm. And this is the importance of natural immunity. This is why it's so important to get COVID naturally, to deal with it naturally with your own immune system. And yes, please help the immune system with a low-carb diet, vitamin C, vitamin D, and iodine. And then you're immune for life, and vaccination becomes entirely irrelevant. Uh, so, I mean, I have seen, you know, from, I know I have a gut feeling this is wrong. The science tells us it's wrong. And my experience of seeing people who have been damaged by the vaccine uh, oh, is now I've got shopping lists of people with myocardial infarctions, with cancers that have gone wild, with inflammatory arthropathies, with, with long COVID as a result of that vaccine. It's very bad news. Yes. We just had a big rally. I think it was 25,000 people. Should have been more, actually, in Los Angeles. Excuse me, I have something in my throat. <clears> throat> it's called it's the dairy products in your throat. <laughs> no dairy products in here. <laughs> um, defeat the mandates route. Well, if you could have seen everybody on you know, anybody who has any say about these vaccines, if they could see those young people in wheelchairs who couldn't even speak. And, you know, one mother was talking to her daughter and she just broke down in tears and couldn't go on. You know, you see this on your phone, you see this and you hear it. But when you're really in the presence of all these young people who are damaged for life by this vaccine, it's it, it really took my breath away because I felt like I knew that. But then my emotion you know, yes. my, my yes. feelings for them. And I just wish people understood that. And I, I just wish the media would show yeah. the damage that this vaccine is doing. And, and you know, you can do certain things perhaps to recover, but they may never recover. Correct. And, Correct. And, and, and I was just listening to Bob, Rob Verkirk speaking you know, an hour ago. And that spike protein is now present in the wastewater of many systems throughout the world. So oh the whole world God. has been contaminated by spike protein. And it's almost impossible now to get a blood, a, a blood from somebody which doesn't contain spike protein. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That is something, isn't it? Yeah. Makes you want to never leave your home. <laughs> yeah, geez. Whoa, what have we done to ourselves? I mean, I think this really is not only is it the crime, you know, it's crime of humanity of what's happened, but it really isn't can be the most disastrous time in history. Correct. We will look back at this time and it will be labelled an era of medical madness. That's right. Exactly. Medical madness. Well, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Myhill. And I will hope, I'm sure there are many people who will sign up for your group sessions because you are so interesting to hear very articulate and you have so much information so and i just love that you are the head of this naturopathic college of medicine because (laughs) you know we really need to come together all of us because in north america we are so put down all the time nobody listened to us and a lot of, and some of the naturopathic physicians actually did inject the vaccine. Whereas the founder of naturopathic medicine, Benedict Lust, he went to jail 18 times because he was against vaccines and vivis, 
vivisection. And his wife was quite wealthy. She bailed out a lot of people who went to prison as well. And I think those roots are just so important to understand and stand by. So it is absolutely a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you and to know that there's another naturopathic advocate out there. Certainly is. <laughs> My mother was from Scotland, so <laughs> I have an affinity for the UK. <laughs> okay. Very Thank good. you so much. My pleasure. You ask all the right questions. Oh, well, you had all the right answers. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Sylvie, don't you think that that's an awfully lovely accent? Well, I do, but I think that's more important than we look at her books. I think that's a fantastic idea because all of her books are really good and I'm really excited. One I haven't read is Green Mother, Families Fit for the Future. That one is new. And she really, she's an expert on chronic fatigue syndrome and mitochondria. She's also written a book called Whistleblowing on 21st Century Medical Practice. She is someone, she is a medical doctor who turned naturopathic physician because she knew what works. And she deregistered from the General Medical Council in Britain and she registered with the Association of Naturopathic Practitioners. So she is someone that you can really take her information and be really confident about what it says. And one more thing before we leave, Ethel, I infuse some peppermint into an oil for you because I know you said you were starting to get some headaches. So not only did you have peppermint tea today, that's really good for digestion and headaches and joint pain, but it's also really good for, you know, you can put it on your forehead if you have a have a headache. So here it is. Here's the... Oh, thanks for that, Doc. One last thing I wanted to say is that it's two months and three weeks away from my book, Transforming Trauma, A Drugless and Creative Path to Healing PTS and ACE. ACE is Adverse Childhood Experiences. I'm really excited to be publishing with Hammersmith Books with Georgina Bentliff. And it's going to be out. It's going to be out soon. So excited. Okay, everyone have a great week or two. And see you next time.